Welcome to the nub. The Euros are around the corner. I am your host, Nabeth, and this is going to be very, very tasty. If you don't know what the nub is, it's very simple. You will be heard about all things Euros. In a moment, we're going to speak to Ben about the England lineup and that England bias we all kind of suffer from. We're also going to look at the dark horses and players you need to keep an eye on. We'll take a look at next season and Aston Villa, who've done their recruitment very early. We'll speak to Johnny about the Ollie Robinson tweets and find out whether his punishment fits the crime. But first, let's turn our focus to England. England's Euros campaign kicks off on Sunday against Croatia. It's going to be very, very tasty, but there's still so many things undecided. Let's start at the top. Trent Alexander-Arnold obviously picked up an injury and was taken out of the squad. And immediately it was Ben White who was put in and not James Ward-Prowse, as most England fans first felt would be the choice. Firstly, talk to me about the Trent being in the squad. Were you Trent in or Trent out? I was very much Trent in. I'm a Liverpool fan, so watching Liverpool week in, week out over the last two or three years, I don't know how there was even a debate about whether Trent should be in or out. He's a world-class right-back. I know that Liverpool, as a as a back four, have not been strong for the last you know six to, six to eight months or so, but he's a world-class right-back. And there is this myth that he can't defend, but he's really good going forward. He actually can defend, and if you compare the stats against the other right-backs that are in the England squad, he actually outperforms them in, in that uh, in that area as well as going forward as well. So I was very much in, get get the boy in. I actually thought he should have started as well. Um, and I'm gutted for him that he wasn't able to, uh, well, he's not able to um, to partake in the, in the tournament. Um, and I'm also gutted as an England fan because I think he would have been a, um, if, if Gareth would have chosen him in the, in the starting eleven. Uh, I think he would have contributed to us uh, going forward, and that's how I, I think we'll, you know, we'll go on and, and do very well in this tournament. Um, there, there is part of me that thinks because Gareth was out and then he was in, and part of me thinks that he was only chosen to appease the public because the public couldn't really understand why Trent wasn't in automatically. Is there a small part of me that thinks that uh, Gareth's kind? I, I don't think he ever wishes one of his players to be injured, of course, but. Is there a bit of a sigh of relief now? Maybe Trent was never going to play at all and this has opened up a space for somebody else? I don't know. Is, um, is that is that yeah. not a pretty bad trait for a manager before a Euros to potentially be picking a player on the basis of making fans happy? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, it, it, yes is, is, the, is the obvious answer. Uh, and I'm very pro Gareth Southgate, by the way. Um, I think I think we've got the right man for the job for this tournament. Um, there is for me, and you you look at his letter to the to the public uh, the other day. I think it was yesterday it came out where he's trying to unite the public and get every everybody on the the sort of patriotic side, but doing it with a a subtle understanding of what the country's been through over the last eighteen months, and you know bringing the whole country together over the hopefully over the next four weeks or so, perhaps. Picking Trent was part of that as well. Um, you know, everybody thought Trent should be in. Um, he's a good player. I think Gareth clearly thinks he's a good player as well. And maybe I'm doing Gareth a, a disservice. Um, but to answer your question directly, yes, if that is the reason why he picked him, um, then it's probably the wrong thing to do. He needs to have some some cojones and, uh, and, and pick who he wants. There's something you said there, and I thought the letter was incredible. I think Gareth Southgate is clearly a good person and a good guy. 
there was a feeling after the previous World Cup that because all of us were sort of like on side with this and like Gareth Southgate's England and we're all going to bring it home, etc., etc., there's an ever so slight element of, I guess, the people who want to play devil's advocate in this, that Gareth wants to get us on side again so that if things do go wrong, there's a feeling of, but we all did it together and we all sucked at it together. So it happened. We got out in a group stage. There is there, there is certainly that, that possibility. I, I think Gareth knows he's got a fairly young-ish squad. And when, you, when you're talking about the likes of Foden and Mount and Grealish, um, they're, they're players that have not got the, 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 the sort of in England tournament uh, experience. And if the country weren't behind the squad and behind the manager, especially after the last 18 months where everyone's had a really tough time, I think that that would have a negative impact on the squad. So I understand why Gareth is trying to unite the country because, firstly, it's nice. It's nice for, for me to feel like I really, really want to support support the boys. But even more important than that, it's really good for the boys to know that the country is, is behind them. Um, and if Gareth is the one that's sort of uh, putting that into place, he's, he's engineering that, that emotion, that feeling across the country, then, then that can't be a bad thing at all. Um, if he doesn't do well for me, Gareth, if we, for example, don't make out the groups, I think he's gone. So whether he's nice or not, I don't think we'll ma- it, will, it will matter. Um, but is it good that he's nice to unite the country and to get the, the country behind his boys? Yeah, I think that's a great thing. Time for some dark horses then, and I don't mean actual dark horses, I'm talking Euros dark horses, and I've got my boy with me and he knows absolutely everything there is to know about football. He is the football dictionary himself. Uh, Jack, my man, how you doing? I'm very well, mate. How are you? Are you good? I'm very, very, very well. Euros just around the corner now, and everyone's talking about France this, Portugal this, England that, and I, I want to know about these other nations, these other nations that are snooping around that we're not paying enough attention to. Is there anyone that springs to mind immediately, as soon as I say dark horses for the Euros, that you go, yeah, I've got one in mind? Well, I've got a couple of layers here, a couple of tiers for you. As in, (laughs) I don't know if you can consider Italy dark horses because they're Italy, right? And they're multiple World Cup champions and and European champions in the past. Oh, fine. But I don't think anyone's been considering Italy as genuine title challengers for this but I think they are I think they really are and I like what Mancini's done with his side I think you cast your mind back right to before World Cup in 2018 that disastrous spell under Giampiero Ventura where they didn't qualify for Russia you know this is one of the giants of the international game not qualifying and suddenly Mancini's come in he's turned this whole ship around they won their qualifying group played 10 won 10 scored 37 only conceded four and yet this isn't an Italy side that's like the Italy sides of old. It's not based on rock-solid defences and grinding out one-nils. This is a side that have come to play. And I'm excited about this Italy side. I'm really high on them. I'm really hot on them. The way they play great football. And they have this kind of old... The, the defensive partnership of Chiellini and Bonucci is probably a little bit past its peak now, let's be honest. You know, there's, there's an argument to suggest that Bastoni and Acerbi is maybe a more for-the-moment partnership. I know Acerbi's also quite old, but... 
but he seems to be the partner that Bastoni's had when he's come in. And Florenzi at right back, not great. But what they do is when they've got the ball, and they have the ball a lot this Italy side, they swing round and they play sort of three, two, five. And it's great fun for everybody involved. The left back goes flying up the pitch, almost as a left winger. It's either Emerson or, uh, or Spinazzola from Roma. Insigne cuts inside and plays in that sort of right-hand forward role. Immobile or Bellotti is going to sit in the nine. Barella goes blasting out from midfield. He plays as kind of the left forward. And Chiesa plays on the right wing. And it's just great fun, man. They, like, they get so many bodies in the box. And then at the base of it all, you've got Jorginho and Marco Verratti just running around dictating play and everyone's having a good time. I'm just really high on them. See, I, I sense the highness and, I, and I, I don't want to put a massive downer on it, but to win these big competitions, you need a solid backline. And I'm looking at Bonucci and Chiellini. Bonucci in particular has fallen off the last few seasons, let's be honest. And then at left back, it's Spinazzola or it's going to be Emerson. And I'm not convinced on either. And then you've got Florenzi at right back, like you mentioned. That backline doesn't make me think... They can manipulate teams and go all the way. Because at some point, I mean, in the group, obviously, they've got Switzerland, Turkey and Wales. I've got a feeling you're going to mention one of those teams as your other dark horses. But they, they, they're going to get damaged in the group. And then you go on and eventually they're going to play a side that can attack, that can cause problems. And then that very ageing backline suddenly looks a little bit more fragile. Sure, but then they've got the best young goalkeeper in Europe behind them, right? So in Gigi Donnarumma, it looks like the fact that they, they have someone who is genuinely able to step up and be the Italy number one for the next 20 years. You know, he's about to do the Buffon stint, if you will, you know, at the back for Italy. And I think that's important. But also, I think you look at this and Italy are a side who are running big time on momentum. Right now, I feel like Italy are running on a different gear and they keep building and they keep building. They haven't lost a game for nearly sort of two years at this point, right? This is how, how the momentum is built. If they win this group, and I think it's actually quite a nicely poised group, if they win this group and they win all three games, they're going to feel unstoppable. And I think that there is something about them that feels like they're back, they're at a level again to compete. And if they come out of this, of the groups, which is a tough ask in itself, as you say, you know, with an unbeaten record, with a perfect record, I think that they'll fancy themselves against anybody. See, I'm going to say it's not that brave a shout because obviously you go in Italy. It's not like we're talking about Macedonia. We're talking about Italy. You know, they are still We're going to talk about Macedonia. Don't you worry. <laughs> we're going to get to North Macedonia, right? What? But I've got two mid-tiers before we get to, to my dark horses to get out of the group, right? Uh, my two mid-tier shouts, which are bigger dark horses than Italy, are Turkey, as you, as you thought. And Ukraine. Um, now, it's a bit of a funny one, but I think Ukraine are going to win their group. And that group has the Netherlands in it. And I'm not hot on this Netherlands team. I'm, I'm low on them. I'm down on them. I don't think Frank de Boer is a particularly brilliant manager. I'm not sure they know what they're going to be playing going into this, where they're playing three at the back, four at the back, how that midfield is going to work, what they're going to do. Yes, there's still quality in that team, Memphis, the likes. But I think Ukraine win this group. Um, and I think it's based on... A relatively solid, relatively solid backline is, you know, slightly less tested perhaps than, than Ukrainian backlines of the past. But Stepanenko in the six behind Malinovsky and Zinchenko as that sort of twin dual engine creative eights is delightful. It's an absolutely delightful midfield. Malinovsky, one of the best long range shooters in, in, in Europe right now, obviously for Atalanta. Zinchenko plays this brilliant role where he's kind of combined all the different elements he's done under the pep and then brought it further forward into the pitch. And then up front, 
Roman Yeremchuk, top scored for them in qualifying with four. Um, obviously, Malinovsky and Shankov got three each. But also, he's got 23 and 43 for Ghent this season, 61 in three seasons since joining them. I like him. I think he's on the verge of a big move. Um, and I think this summer might be the one that sort of catapults him into that big move. I think he's going to make a mark at this tournament. That's it's a very wild shout considering there's also Austria in that group as well. And I know Austria. I think Austria come there. bottom of this group. We'll get, oh. that. We'll get to that. <laughs> uh, it's a wild shout there right off the bat. I think what we saw of Austria against England was encouraging for Austria. Not very encouraging for England. I think the issue Austria probably have is they don't know whether they're going forward or whether they're going backwards. The big thing about Ukraine is I think there's a lot of players on that side that haven't been tested at the highest level. There are a few, obviously Malinovsky at Atlanta is an unbelievable player, Zinchenko as well. But there are other players who I think they need to get tested at the highest level. So I think Ukraine, I mean, these are your dark horses, not mine. Um, Turkey, you mentioned Turkey. This one I think I can get on board with, but why are you backing Turkey so hard? Well, I think there's there's just a really nice blend of talent. It feels like a really nicely balanced side, right? There are issues with it, but you look at the defensive partnership, whether that is Soyuncu and Demiral, whether that is Demiral's obviously been injured for the last 18 months or so. Ozan Kabak came in, did really well in that partnership with Soyuncu. One of the key kind of weird ones is that they have four really quite good centre-backs. You know, they are, they're four people who are very capable of stepping up into that role. And yet, you know, we're not quite sure who it's going to be, who's actually going to, going to start that first game. I mean, if I was a betting man, I would go for Soyuncu and Demiral, just because it's on paper their best two. But I do think there's something to be said about the fact that Ihan and obviously uh, Kabak can come in there and make a difference. Now, that's four top quality centre-halves you've got there who are all capable and comfortable in this team. Uh, Right-back Celik, who's been excellent for Lille this season. The midfield two, okay, Yokoslu, who hasn't had a brilliant time at West Brom, but is just very much the kind of base piece on which this is based. You know, he sits, he tucks, and he just sort of controls from the bottom. Ozan Tufan next to him, I like a lot. He's an absolute Mm, pocket rocket, a dynamo in the middle, and he just sort of gets around. And then there's this kind of interchanging front three behind Yilmaz. And come on to Yilmaz. But, you know, Chalhanoglu, Yusuf Yazici. Now, whether that's Karaman or it's Under, I think it's going to be Karaman who starts on the right-hand side, who pushes forward into that into that space. I think he just gives him a little bit more reliability given the season that Cengiz Under has had at Leicester and not been able to really play. And then there's the big man, aging like a fine wine up top. Burak Yilmaz dragged Lille almost single-handedly at points over the line in terms of their title race uh, against PSG. He's come to you know a European top league for the first time, a top five league, and he has stepped up and been like, yeah, I can do it at 35 and what? And, and I think that... You know, when you look at this side as a whole, it's been growing together. It's got Senor Gunez as the manager. He, he also took Turkey to their third place finish in 2002. He's back again at the helm. You know, this is a manager who knows these things. And he's, he's a manager who, who knows what he wants from his side. And I just think you look at the way that they qualified second in Group H behind France. They beat France in, in that game, you know, played 10, won seven, drawn two, lost one. It scored 18, only conceded three. Just a very, very comfortable side. They feel like they know exactly where they are. And I think that usually makes for a good upset side. I I can't disagree too much with Turkey because they're also my dark horses. I also think Turkey could go far. The only concern here is 
Yilmaz and his age, and obviously left back as well. But Yilmaz, firstly, I think in these tournaments, you've got to score goals. I mean, to be in all fairness, you can go all the way winning 1-0s, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think the way the season's been, people, players are going to be tired, there's going to be goals pouring out here, there and everywhere. My concern is after Yilmaz, it's Unyal, and he's he's been poor. He, a couple of seasons ago, people thought this kid was going to be special. I just don't think he's kind of found that level. If Yilmaz picks up an injury... If, actually, forget an injury. This geezer's not playing 90 minutes every third day. They've got a big problem in that sort of area. Yeah, I, I do agree. There, there is the wild card here. Obviously, Czech Tosin injured, can't participate. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'll leave you to decide. <laughs> but um, they have this wild card in Halil Dervshoglu, right, who was at Brentford on loan to Galatasaray. Never thought I'd say that. Really sad I've had to say that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he... Went to Galatasaray in, in January, stumbled, struggled a bit. He wasn't quite sure where he fitted in, wasn't sure where he played. But then Kay turned around and, and bagged three in their last two games as they were, you know, really pushing on for, to try and get that title. You know, obviously they missed out, but he's found some form out of nowhere. And suddenly he's this sort of 26th man wildcard that if they don't want to throw Unal in, which you can completely understand why they wouldn't, given the season he's had, that Dervishoglu might just be the wild card that they need here. And I think he, we might see him get more minutes than I think even he might have bargained for. Yeah, and then the issue at left back, which really has been really unfortunate for him. Although one thing I will say in the qualifiers, they did play three at the back a couple of times. And I wouldn't personally oppose a Kabak Suyuncu, possibly Demiral back, back three. I wouldn't personally oppose that. The problem they've got is who do you then play right and left? Yeah, I, I don't think it helps you. I don't think Chelix will, will be a particularly good wing back. I think he likes to rumble forward from, from right back. And, and then at, at left back, you have this, this dilemma because obviously Meras, you'd imagine, is going to play there. He's the more experienced. He's the elder statesman of the two that have gone. Um, but he also plays in League 2. And we're not sure if, you know, if you've got Fede Chiesa and Gareth Bale running at you in your first two games... That's slightly concerning, uh, I, I think, if you're a league the left back. Now, the other option is obviously the other Yilmaz, but he's 20 years old. He's had a good season. He's had a good start. He looks like he's going to be a real prospect, but he's only played two times for the Turkish national team. And I just can't see, I can't see Gunez throwing in a left back with two caps into this first game. And I think that's a worry, a real worry for Turkey. If you are any side facing them, you're going, everything goes down the right. Everything goes down the right. But in all fairness, you're giving me three dark horses here. Italy, we said the centre-backs are weak. Ukraine, we said they could be inexperienced. And Turkey, we're saying the left-backs weak. So it's good. every single country is going to have this problem. But we've spoken dark horses. Give me a couple of players that you, you think we should look out for. Players that you think are, I guess, the dark horses, but in relation to players. Well, I mentioned one already. I really, really, I think Yeremchuk is going to break out. I think this is his breakout tournament. I think he is one that's going to go far. I like, you know what? I like North Macedonia's chances of qualifying in third place. I, I genuinely think that they, they can spring a surprise or two. And one of their players, wearing number nine, Tchaikovsky, I like a lot. I just don't really think Austria are very good. Um, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't think they know how to use David Alaba. And I don't think I know how to use David Alaba at this, at this point in that, in that side because... While Leimer is a, is a good, good player on the right back, their two centre-backs in, in Djokovsky and uh, Hinteregger are incredibly slow. Um, and I think they need to play Alaba at left-back in order to counter that. But I have a problem that if you do that, I think Alaba's going to go bombing forward and, and, and lose out on parts of, of what's going on. So, so I actually think that they're, they're right for the taking, Austria. And I went to watch 
I went to watch North Macedonia play Armenia a couple of years back, back when we could go and do things. Um, I went to see them. They beat Armenia 2-0. Uh, Alioski of Leeds scored and, and Goran Pandev scored, obviously. Um, but the player that stood out to me was Tchaikovsky, their little number nine. He's, he's a bit of a... He plays wide. He plays through the middle. He plays, you know, as a kind of secondary striker as well. He can kind of do a bit of everything. Um, he's just really nippy, quite electric. He's just got promoted again uh, with Mallorca. Um, back to back to La Liga, so he's going to have you know another season in La Liga next year, and I'm just really excited. I think he's going to be someone that catches the eye a little bit for for North Macedonia. So so there you go. There's a there's a proper wild card. <laughs> the whole North Macedonia segment is a wild card. Uh, one player I'd definitely say to keep an eye on is Enes Bardi. The guy is basically James Ward Prowse with a Macedonian version. Uh, he is deadly on set pieces. As I said. The man who's a football dictionary, Jack. Thank you so much for your time. Um, great insight. And if Turkey go all the way, then shout out to you. To be fair, if Macedonia get out of the group. That's what's that's what's really <laughs> here. That's what we're all really here for. Thank you for having me, as ever, my friend. It's been a real pleasure. So I've just played Ultimate Fan. To explain what this is, it's very simple. Fantasy football meets pack openings. Now, if you know me, you know I love my pack openings and I also love fantasy football. It's completely free to play and there's a chance that you could win 125k in a cash prize. Honestly, 125k. It's absolutely mad. It's completely free to enter for the upcoming Euros and with that 125k up for grabs, you want to get you. You need to be getting your hands on it. You know me; I'm teaming and all the way. Kane's my guy, but I'd love to get a few few of the ballers in there. Mason Mount, don't mind if I do. All you have to do is open your free packs to reveal players, stroke teams to create your squad. Head over to UF Plus, which is UF Plus Gold subscription. Now, you can subscribe and get a bundle of items, including these gold promo packs, which are going to drop throughout the entire month. You don't want to miss that, because if there's certain players out there that you want in your packs, this is the way to get them. I'm about to open my first pack. Let's have it. Right, you get 10 in a pack. Let's see what we've got from my free base pack. We've got Marcel Sabitzer, absolute baller, different gravy. We've got Poland, the, the country, which isn't too bad. I'm trying to get across to this one. We've got Zuba. Now, pronunciation's a bit off there. Let me try that again. Zuba. He's the Russian dynamite forward. He's an absolute giant. You don't want to come up against him. Then we've got Inov, also Russian. Not bad. We've got Satka, decent defender, to be fair. Uh, we've got, oh, this is a pronunciation and a half. Macedonia's finest. Ston... Stojanarkovsky, that's horrendous. I'm sorry for butchering your name, my friend. Then we've got Hassani, who's actually very, very decent. We've got Adama Traore, which is sensational because he is an absolute baller and he's a tank as well. And he's probably one of the quickest men on earth. And we've got the dynamite Fabian Ruiz, central midfielder. I'm not going to lie, if there's a player who plays exactly like me, or maybe me like him, it's Fabian Ruiz. And we've got Emmerich Laporte, shameless plug, but he follows me on Instagram. That is a hell of a start. I'll absolutely take that. Time to open the gold pack. Get free cards. I'm telling you, I can feel it in my soul. I'm about to get Harry Kane 
or Mason Mount? I haven't got either. I've got Croatian defender Petkovic, but there's a gold next to him. And he plays for France. Do I dare take a look at this? I've swiped it. Oh, he's got Kylian Mbappe. Oh, my God. And the next one's an England player. But we've just got Kylian Mbappe in my second pack. Well, my first ever goal pack. My second pack. I've got an England player. I'm going to predict I've got Jordan Henderson because I can see the future. I see things that people pay to document. I've got Harry Maguire. I mean, I'm not opposed to Harry Maguire. I just thought I'd have Jordan Henderson. I'll absolutely take it. Harry Maguire in the bag. Kylian Mbappe. I don't think there's many better strikers than Kylian Mbappe that anybody would want on this. I'll take that. I'll absolutely take that. Thank you, gods of ultimate fan. You've got to be 18 years of age or older to play uh, UK and Ireland residents only. And terms and conditions apply. You can see the details at ultimatefan.com. Next, I'm joined by Aston Villa fan George, who is smiling ear to ear. You can't see him, but I definitely can. Uh, that probably has a lot to do with Jack Grealish and Villa's recruitment, etc., etc. But there's only one place to start. Jack Grealish has been given the number seven for the Euros. Talk to me about Jack as a whole. Oh, it just has to start. Has to start. I mean, I, I've loved Jack for years, obviously, and 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 biased as I am. But I think what's been great the last, especially this season, a little bit last season as well, is that he's shown what he's really capable of. And Villa fans have, all, have always seen it. Um, and Villa fans have probably been labelled as biased and just seen roasted spectacles, I guess, of, of Jack. And I think What's been amazing the last couple of seasons is that actually he's shown it on the biggest stage, which is the Premier League. And I have no doubt if he's given the chance by Gareth Southgate that he'll show it on the international stage as well. Um, I'm excited to see him on that on that front, and I hope he gets given the opportunity because, yeah, I really think he'll thrive. Do you feel as though Jack Grealish can handle the pressure of people sort of like looking at him and saying he's got a character like Gaza? And it's going to be his competition. And he's got this like charisma that people almost have fallen in love with, really similar to Gaza. Do you think he can handle that pressure on a big stage? Yeah, absolutely. I think Phil Foden's probably taken the pressure off him by getting his hair cut like Gaza. So that's probably, that's probably helped. But I think really strives on it. I really do. I think uh, every time he's given critics, and he has been, Sooness, one of the one of the major ones in Sky Sports. I think he answers them every time. And, I, yeah, I do think if he's given that opportunity, I, I fully expect him to be one of the one of the shining lights for England this, this summer. You mentioned Grealish has to be in the side. Now, I hear this a lot about England players. I've heard it about Maguire. I've heard it about Kane. I've heard it about Henderson. I've heard it about Trent. I've heard it about a lot of England players. Trying to take your Aston Villa bias out. Give me your England front three. Uh, I can easily do that, by the way. Like, I, I am biased towards Grealish, but I wouldn't start Mings at centre-back, for example. Like, I can easily take the Aston Villa bias out of it. Front three, um, I honestly can't see three other names than Foden, Grealish and Kane. I really can't. Is there a hint of concern there that 
when you go to these tournaments, pace is a big thing. I mean, football pace is just a big thing in football as a whole. I'm not saying Foden and Grealish are slow at all. Neither actually are. They're very deceptively deceptively quick. But they're kind of similar in the type of play- profile they are in comparison to, say, like a Rashford, who's just pure explosive pace, or maybe a Sterling, or maybe a Sancho. Do you fear that starting two players that don't have that sort of, like, centre-back picks up and just pings it long and they get after it might hinder England a little bit? Yeah, I, to be fair, I do see the argument. And and it's one of those things where I've thought all the way through, like, oh, forget the argument. Like, they're, they're great enough players on the ball. But I think Kane's scored a lot of goals in the air and a lot of it is about delivery. And, yeah, for me, I just think you've got to get your best ball players on the pitch and... And over the last, all right, Grealish has been injured, but over the last, over the season, I think they've been the best forward players. Kane, obviously, there's no other, there's no other striker that would get anywhere close. And then after that, for me, it's Grealish and Foden. I think, give or take the last three months, I would always have thought Grealish and then Foden's come into the frame. And I think before that, yeah, it probably was a toss-up between Rashford, Sancho, Sterling, but... To me, now, Foden's one of the first names on the team sheet as well. So, I don't know. I think there's. I think Southgate will probably go with loyalty and he will probably start one or if not both of Sterling and Rashford. Um, and it's probably easy to say as a fan, right, that you should be playing the youngsters and, and the guys that are thriving and, and a guy that I support. Um, easier said than done than a, a, a European Championship, but... Yeah, I'd like to think if I was in his, his shoes, I would play I would play the, the shining lights of this season in, in, in Jack and Phil. Shining lights of this season. Rashford's had a pretty good season in all with all things considered. Sancho's had a pretty good season. Sterling is probably the one where I think maybe has underperformed this season. Um you're obviously gonna back Grealish every single time, naturally. Harry Kane's style of play, that dropping in deep, and Grealish's style of play cutting inside and he tends to he can come narrow but he can also go wide which is very healthy for him but there is a big difference in how Villa play and how England play Villa Grealish will tuck inside allows target to go around the outside but also opens the inside channel for Grealish uh, similar for Foden on the opposite side with Kane dropping into that pocket as well could there be an argument saying well if Kane's going to drop in and he is probably our best player and he suits playing with wingers that are rapid like Son and probably less so Bale, but he prefers playing them balls in behind, that maybe Grealish might have to tinker his position. Maybe he has to play somewhere else to accommodate Harry Kane. Yeah, maybe. And I think Southgate tried that in the recent friendly. He played him as a 10 and and, and played him a bit deeper during that game. Like Grealish probably hasn't done that so much for He's played off the left quite a lot and played as a 10. Um, it's hard, right? I don't think there's... There's so many of these good players and I think... That's the that's the good thing about England this year. There's a, almost an embarrassment of riches going forward, and I think it's almost a nice well, it is a nice problem to have. But has there been enough friendly games? Has there been enough games in training to really trial out what the best system is? Um, I'm 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 almost sure that Southgate's probably had a word with Kane and said, "Who do you want playing behind you? What? How do you how do you see it?" Because yeah, I mean, there's a there's you can make a case for any of those forward players, and I think that's a good thing. I think that's only that's only a strength, and 
there'll be arguments for or against the people on people on the team sheet and the people left on the bench. Mm. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about Villa as well, who've uh, done their first bit of recruitment for the transfer window. Emi Buendia is arriving from Norwich, probably one of the best players in the championship. It's it's shown a big sort of ambition of what Villa are all about, pipping Arsenal to the deal. Now, I know a lot of people troll Arsenal and lots of people are going to say, are Arsenal really a big club, etc., etc. But for Villa to go and beat Arsenal to a deal... That I think a lot of big clubs actually would have been looking at if COVID hadn't happened and if they wanted to spend money um, on championship players. That has been a pretty good and almost a foolproof way of Villa's recruitment is they've gone and got players from divisions below. Ollie Watkins, another good example, is a really good footballer as well. How do you feel about that Buendia signing? And do you think that's the sort of signing that kind of suggests that Villa are pushing for Europe? Yeah, I hope so. I think... Um... I mean, I feel two ways about it. Like a lot of people have said, is that a greatest replacement? I don't think it is. I think uh, Villa are in a very good spot with the owners that they've got. And, and for the last two, three years, have tried to do their business early. So I'm hopeful in saying that that's somebody to compliment Jack Grealish and not to replace him. Um, and I think, to your point, challenging for Europe, I think we have to do that. I think every season... For players like Jack Grealish, you have to keep progressing. If we don't, then we're probably going to lose him to a to a top side. And and he's what 24, 25 now. Like fair play. Like he, the the guy is probably going to show it on the world stage this summer, and probably could show it in the Champions League and everything else. So yes, I think great. We've done the recruitment early. I hope there's more to follow. Um, I haven't seen enough of Buendia. I mean, I've seen some of the stats and I'm excited by it and it's a lot of money, but I mean, signings now are a lot of money and even it coming from the championship, Ollie Watkins was a lot of money and it paid off. So, um, yeah, I've renewed my season ticket and I'm excited to to hopefully see Buendia and Grealish link up together next season. Well, it must be a touch of concern that when Grealish was out at the end of last season, Villa were one of the worst sides in the league. So if he does leave... And Buendia is his replacement. You've got a very big problem on your hands because for everything you've just said about Jack Grealish, he is the guy at Villa. Um, would you? How much would you take for Grealish to go? I think that I think that's probably the reason why he won't go unless he has a ridiculous Euros, which if Southgate plays him, he has the potential to do. Um, it's really what Villa would would accept because I, to. To me, he's irreplaceable, respective of the money that you're going to get. Because, as you've just said there, when he was out of the team, we we weren't very good. He makes every player play better, and um, yeah, even if even if Villa got 100 million, I can't see us replacing 100 million worth of signings and making our team better. I think it still makes it worse. So um, yeah, let's just hope the sign of Wendia and. Grealish has a good Euros, but not fantastic <laughs> enough to, to move him on. I mean, yeah, double-edged sword, really. If he stays, considering everything you've said, say you've got Buendia, and I'm sure you'll recruit again, as you mentioned, Villa tend to do their recruitment early. I imagine a centre-back might be on the way, uh, and you recruited very well last season. There's a couple of windows of good recruitment. Surely with the climate of where the Premier League is, we've mentioned Arsenal, and our Arsenal have sort of fallen off going through transition. Spurs currently don't have a manager. We're looking at Liverpool, City, United as your top three, with Chelsea in your top four. Surely it feels like Europe is a minimum for Dean Smith. 
Yeah, I think it was almost a blessing that we didn't get Europe this season. Like we were, we were trending very well the first part of the season, and then obviously Grealish got injured, and and probably that ruled it out. But I almost think the squad's too small. If you looked at our bench most of the time, we probably had two, three youngsters on the bench every week. Um, and I think if we we had reached Europe, then as you've seen with sides that just scrape Europe without a big squad, they struggle the next season. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it has to be a minimum requirement, um, not least to keep Jack Grealish. So it won't be easy. There's a lot of good sides up there, but we've obviously made a statement quite early with Brandia and and hopefully there's more to follow and. Yeah, fingers crossed European football is on the way because I think we need to keep making those strides and if we don't, then, um, yeah, then certain players will be leaving. Who who would you like to see Villa sign? Because I think there's a problem from from the outside last season that Ollie Watkins was almost your only striker and then Wesley came back, but he's been injured for so long. Um, and there was an argument to say Ollie Watkins doesn't score enough goals, etc., etc. Who would you like to see Villa sign if you were to push for Europe? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's talked about Tammy Abraham coming back, whether that's an emotional connection because he scored so many goals in the championship. Um, Ollie Watkins did fit all season, only missed uh, 90 minutes last season. He got kind of a, a debatable second yellow. So it's it's fortunate to keep one striker fit all season. Keenan Davis, has, who scored like three goals in 60-odd games, so he's clearly not an appropriate a replacement. So I think we need to sign a striker. I also, I think to your to your point earlier, where you said about a centre back, I think we need to sign a defender. I mean, I I personally love to see Axel Twanzebi come back, um, not least because he's got a fantastic song for the terraces. But let's hear um, it. Let's hear it. I've... Absolutely not. <laughs> um, yeah, he plays centre back, but also can play right back, and I think he fills fills a need that that Villa have. And, and I don't know who the person is, but I think what I would love to see at Villa is is a defensive midfielder. Um, we've obviously got Douglas Louise, who's a good ball player and marvellous Nakamba, who kind of breaks it up quite well. But I think we could do with almost a bullish character in there, uh, almost a tough character in there that would really shore up um, shore up in front of the back four. So I, I have no doubts that they'll, Villa will get the business done early. But I think, yeah, a striker and defensive midfielder for sure is... is where we need to strengthen. Not asking for much, eh? Just for a little European challenge, just just chuck us in a striker, a centre back, a holding midfielder. All right. And keep Jack. That's the most important yeah, thing. Keep Jack. Thank you very much, George. of his sexist and racist tweets from over a decade ago resurfaced Ollie Robinson uh, was suspended by the ECB uh, which also prompted the PM and sports minister to comment on uh, what they see as over the top um, and also James Anderson who plays for England uh, mentioned that the squad is behind him they think he's changed as a person uh, I've got Johnny with me to talk through this topic um, we've seen this happen a few times now. It's not the first time tweets have resurfaced. First of all, seeing that and seeing the tweets that were a while back, what was your immediate reaction? Well, obviously, the, the, looking at the tweets themselves in, in isolation, it, it, it clearly doesn't make for, for good reading. Um, you know, what would make anybody 
sort of write that sort of thing and and press uh, publish on a on a public forum for the world to see is uh, um, is a big question. But um, yeah, the, the words weren't great, and um, the the immediate reaction is really it, that that's not nice. It's not appropriate, um, and there's no place for it. Is is there? Is that there's an argument from a lot of people that says he was pretty young when he did it. He's 18, 19 years of age. Um, there has been cases before where people have been 15, 16. Do you think there's a big difference between being 14, 15, 16 and being 18, 19? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, there the, the, the probably is. I mean, I guess I don't know exactly when he did it. I think the reports are that he was 18, um, is he still at school? Had he left school? Was he in college? Was he, a, you know, was he a professional cricketer at that stage? That's also a question that um, that came to my mind when thinking about this topic. You know, who was he then? Was he just a kid out of out of school in Sussex or wherever he lived, um, or was he a contracted cricketer? I guess that's that's factual. But but does that make a difference? Like, if he's a cricketer, do you feel as though it's I'm not putting words into your mouth, but do you feel as though there's more license to do it or that maybe he should definitely not do it because he's a cricketer? No, I, I, this is what I'm saying. I think if, if he was a, a cricketer and signed at a professional club, first he would have thought that immediately in this day and age, that would have been the type of, although we are, we are going back 10 years, but even then, you would have thought that would have been one of the first things that these academies do, whether it's cricket, football, rugby, is, is talk to these guys about their responsibilities as professionals uh, which they now are having signed a contract um so yeah i would have expected him less much less to do that had he been a cricketer now we don't know if he was if he, if he wasn't um he's just a, a kid he's just a teenager he's is an anybody um writing it and, and obviously here we are 10 years later and he's uh he's playing for the england cricket team do you think the treatment of a sportsmen and women is fair considering there is probably a lot of people out there who when they were 15 16 17 18 19 who've tweeted this stuff and that it's going to go unchallenged and be completely fine do you think it's fair that we're so i guess harsh as some people might say it towards sportsmen um well it's a it's a great question and it's something that comes up every single time uh, a sportsman or woman gets into trouble or says something or something historic comes up and I guess the the easy answer, maybe the copper answer, is every situation is is individual, and you have to take it for what it is. The individual circumstances. Um, it is different. I would argue writing something ten years ago as a teenager, which is then uncovered a decade later, you are a different person. His life will have changed a, a billion times between between now and then. Um, so there is a difference and to uphold sports men and women to a particular standard I think I think there is a responsibility because they are role models whether you like it or not and this is often the debate you hear on all sorts of social media and radio stations are they role models well they are like it or not they are because they're in the, the spotlight they're on TV they're on social media um, and in that case you know like it or not you've got I feel additional responsibilities. The the side of this that I'm looking at also is it's his England debut 
and these tweets pop up out of nowhere. So the, the media obviously has a part to play in this. They probably knew about this a week earlier and decided to do it on his debut. Is that part of a bit of... Is that, like, part of a bigger problem here? That, like, our media is desperate to do it then? Do you know what? This is an interesting one because often, often football journalists and the football media are accused of things like this, you know, on, on the... On the cusp of tournaments, all of a sudden they'll bring something up. You know, I remember like Raheem Sterling's tattoo in the last tournament, and you know, just to you know, and our media have got a reputation for it. But when it comes to cricket, <laughs> I think maybe times have changed. But you think of cricket journalists as sort of old, uh, old men in flat caps, and uh, you know, sort of the Michael Avertons and, and David Gowers of this world, who you wouldn't think guys like that are chomping at the bit to keep something in the pocket and reveal it then. Um, but it might be sports departments from newspapers and, and radio stations. I'm sure that the ECB and I'm sure that the cricket club itself should probably ask, be asking the questions, how long have they been holding on to this information? Did they deliberately choose that day? It seems like somebody did to reveal it to them. Another thing, again... Certainly when guys sign professional contracts now at this level of sport, one of the first things their HR and social media department do is, right, come and sit down in the office. You've been in the building for five minutes. Let's go through all your historical tweets and Instagram posts and get rid of them. So, um, listen, on the one hand, it has been exposed now, but it's also a question to the the cricket club as well why why they didn't get rid of them but it's not to hide from not to hide from the issue that, that's what I was going to say it's, it's kind of like saying if if it wasn't there then sound like great it wasn't there so nobody saw it but the fact that a lot of a lot of people and I, me included I also thought hold on a minute why did they not just wipe this out there, there's partially an issue there as well like if this is happening you can just keep wiping it out and go on and play for England and be a role model for all these young kids there's definitely a problem there it's probably a good thing that it's come out and I don't know this guy and maybe he has changed as a person but it's probably a good thing it's come out because otherwise he could have been roaming around saying whatever he wants and influencing people however he yeah. wants yeah no I, I, I listen I, I fully I appreciate that that is it's come out and he said those things. It's uh, it's undeniable. He's, he's said it himself. He, he did it all those years ago. Um, and may, maybe it is right that when these things are uncovered that, that these guys have to face it up. And he is 27 now. Um, so he's a bit he's a bit older. It's not exactly like, like you mentioned at the beginning, something he did at 12 or 13 and then he's apologising at 18 when... You know, you've got much less sort of life experience than than a twenty-seven-year-old man would have. Um, so, I guess from th- this specific incident, he has manned up. I mean, he say man that it's not as if it's something he should get credit for, but he's apologised and he's, he's gone in front of his teammates. He's gone in front of the media. He said, "I did type these things. I did write them. Um, I'm ashamed. It's not me." Um, and I apologise, and he's got the backing of uh, of his teammates and, and what have you. And what more, what more can can he do now? I mean, I might have written something, you might have written something, everyone might have written something or said something that could be unearthed and dug up in, in their past, which they regret all these years later. What, what else 
do we want to happen? I mean, they've suspended in the ECB, I believe, which is also a debatable topic. Should they or shouldn't they have? Yeah, and then also another layer to that is politicians have decided to get involved. And it and it goes back to your point of in football, the football media and journalists are known to want to dig things up and cricket journalists maybe less so. Why were these political comments not made when previous tweets from footballers were mentioned? Why was this like almost we have to defend all? <laughs> I don't know. Do you know what? I haven't I haven't looked at it that way. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if you... <laughs> You know, we're going down the lines of it. Is 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 cricket the uh, the middle class uh, white man sport that that needs to be defended by uh, by politicians? I, I will not. I, I'm going to not be cynical here, and I'm going to say that I think Oliver Dowden and um, I think it was and Boris would have would have now defended a footballer in the same in the same instance. I mean, I think the whole thing would have obviously with its football. It would be scandal. It'd be national. Can you imagine if an England player in an England squad, these tweets would have come out? Cricket, obviously, is a very, very popular sport, and these have been the headlines for a few days. But it's not as big as it would have been with football. I'd like to think that maybe they they would have supported a footballer in in the same instance. Historically, have they? I'm not sure. We'd have to go back and look. Well. You- you mentioned Raheem Sterling and his was about a gun tattoo yeah. and no politician stood up to say it's just a tattoo. Now, <laughs> they're, they're, there's two very, two different worlds, cricket yeah. and football. They definitely yeah, yeah, are. Yeah. But polit- if politicians are going to stand up and say Ollie Robinson's fine after a, a, a load of tweets, but not step up and say Raheem Sterling is fine after a tattoo, there's definitely something wrong or going on. Yeah, I get that. I mean... Do we know for certain that not one politician, not anybody in the government at the time said that this is ridiculous for the media to bring this up about Sterling's tattoo? There must have been somewhere. Um, I don't know whether it was blanket silence um, from from the government at the time. I don't know. I think usually they would reflect the uh, general consensus of the of the population and i think most people with the gun tattoo just thought what's the issue here just uh, get on with it but i don't know how loud a yeah. politician said anything or not really i mean like from my memory i don't i, I can't say for sure cuz i'd have to go and google and google it i don't remember a politician saying anything um but again like yeah, and there's got to be a reason for that. Uh, the only the only way to find out really is if it happens again. Hopefully, it doesn't. Um, do Do you think the punishment? Because you did say it's a, it's a whole other discussion. Do you think the punishment on Ollie Robinson was fair uh, or unfair? <sighs> well, I was actually just reading something before this, and it, it it's <laughs> it's almost like I think the ECB have done the old thing, and maybe the FA would have done, and maybe the international or the British Rowing Federation would have done or the Slalom Federation have basically covered their own back by giving him a suspension. Mm-hmm. I'm actually not sure how long it is. Is it just one game or is it a period of time? Um, I, I know he's definitely not available for the ne- the, the test. Uh, is it tomorrow or next week? Yeah, f- for now it's just for the next test. Right, so it's just for the next... So it's sort of the easy thing to do, isn't it, as a, as a governing sporting body is suspend him 
Uh, it looks good. It looks like we're taking critical action and um, everything like that, and then he'll come back. Do I think that was necessary in this instance? I'm going to say no, personally, because of all of the the minor details of this. The fact, not just the fact they came out and apologised. Um, but, but but what would he what would he have done? Like if he, there's no way he's just going to sit there and say, yeah, I'm not going to say sorry. I'm just going to leave it. Yeah, well, that's true. So yeah, so so so, so you say yeah, he was always going to say something, whether it was scripted or not scripted. Um, you know what? Actually, do you know what? I've just said I'm not sure if one game back <laughs> was right. <clears throat> I think maybe in the in keeping up appearances, I could be swayed to say actually maybe they have done the right thing. It's one game. It's a lesson. It doesn't matter that it was ten years ago. It's someone under there. Uh, auspices, you know, he plays for England. Um, maybe if you don't suspend him and just say, well, look, he's apologised. That's all we want. Um, maybe that's not quite good enough. Um, so they've taken a line on it. Before I let you go, this is a very tricky question. What What do you think should be the next step? Because it feels as though, and it's certainly in football, racism or sexism isn't taken as seriously compared to something else. And we've seen it on repeat. We've seen it where players have been banned for two games for something racist but if if you if you do something off the pitch it's like six or seven games in cricket obviously it's one match and a part of me does also think it was 10 years ago the guy's got his one international game ban who knows he might not even ever play for England again because you have to be a certain level he's getting his debut at 27 but what should be the punishment listen I think I think the one game ban they'll be investigating it I'm sure they'll be questioning him and the club and Twitter and whoever's involved, I think he should go on one of these. And again, it might be a cop-out because you hear it all the time and I'm probably someone who's saying, what the bloody hell's the point in it? But one of these courses that they do at this professional level about diversity and about understanding and about... um, you know, racism and everything like that. Listen, I'm sure you've got you've got to think that as this guy's gone from 17 to 27 and as he's progressed as a man and a sportsman in this world and in this day and age and come to have a job and work around black and Asian people and people from all different ethnic diversities and backgrounds, I'm sure he's come to, to learn and doesn't hold any racist... Uh, opinions anymore. Listen, maybe I'm I'm letting him off the hook, but what what can you do? What more can you do? You can't you can't suspend him indefinitely. You can't give him a financial ban. Sorry, give him a financial a fine. Is that going to help? It's difficult. It's difficult. If it's about racism and if it's about understanding diversity, then really that it's got he's got to learn. He's got to learn. And how can you how can you learn? To the to the point of what you said about he's probably played with uh, people from all kinds of ethnic minorities. I'm really going far stretched here. But Donald Trump had a Sikh man in his cabinet and a black man in his cabinet. He also had multiple females in his cabinet. But he was definitely racist and he was definitely sexist. So I don't know whether that 
And I'm not saying Ollie Robinson still is. I don't know the guy. All I know is from the tweets and who he is now. It's quite difficult to say because he he's, he's got a black friend or an Asian friend and, and he's got a girlfriend, this guy's not racist or sexist. No, correct. I get that. But at the same time, where do you... Where where do we draw the line? You know, what, what happens to this man's life? You know... It, <sighs> You you can't you don't know inside anybody's head inside the skull in the brain what they're thinking, you know. We'll never know um, what makes somebody uh, a racist, a sexist. It's not something you get diagnosed with, is it? It's not. A, <laughs> it's not. We can all make judgments and pass judgments and opinions, but it's not something you go to the doctors. It's not a matter of fact. So what whatever we say about anybody and in this instance I think we have to let the guy learn understand what he's done wrong because you know it's, it's it might be a strange analogy people talk about prison being you know rehabilitation from from drugs from alcohol from crime do you do you look down at that person and those people forever until the day they die as, as people who cannot um, rehabilitate and not capable of working, of not capable of having other friends or living in normal society because they once did something at some point in their life. Um, I don't know, Nubaid. It's uh, <laughs> it's like it's life, isn't it? And it's uh, it's complex, and all these issues it's, are. It's an incredibly tough topic to yeah to find the answer. It's very difficult to find the answer for what what is what how do you know how like as you literally just said how do you know that this guy is improved or he's not etc etc um johnny really appreciate your time and being honest and open with us because it is a difficult topic to talk about um and i think you've uh, articulated it pretty well i know there's no there's no answers to this is it it's just that it's, it's discussions that can go on so cheers thank you anytime that is episode one done. Thank you to all the guys who called in. The Euros is here, people. It's time to get absolutely hyped. And if you want to have your say on the nub, and then one thing I'm going to say about this is lots of you are going to be talking on the internet. Bring your voices to the nub. Put your necks on the line. I want to hear from you. And it's very simple. Go to nubpod.com and click call Nabade now. I'll see you next week. What makes a good football manager? A flashy suit, a tracksuit, or is it down to luck? Decision making, wheeling and dealing, or signing star players. At the end of the day, it's about getting results. Oh, my fan is the new free-to-play app. Open packs, collect players, then pick your team and crush the opposition. This is the next level fantasy football. Think you've got what it takes? Stop talking and start proving. There's £125,000 up for grabs. Oldmafan.com. Download the app now. Must be 18 years or older. Terms and conditions apply. Please play responsibly.